up in prayer and these requests for him. Father, we do thank you for what you're doing and accomplishing through Ed and the ministry uh, down there with the folks in Lawrence. Lord, we know that you're in great need down there and uh, you have orchestrated this time uh, to bring Ed here for just the time as this, and we're thankful for that. Lord, we know there's much going on by way of um, uh, the legalities behind uh, Maria Jesus becoming a citizen here and all that takes place, Lord, and the timing of all of those things. We know you you perfectly have all of that uh, taken care of. And so we just want to trust you in that. We do pray for Ed's uh, upcoming uh, meetings with this homeless shelter as well as uh, with the mission and uh, and uh, these kind of things where there's uh, future opportunities for ministry, Lord. We pray that... Uh, that your hand would guide that, wisdom uh, would prevail in all of that, and that uh, all these things would work out to your glory and to the honor of your great name, we pray and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's good to be back once again uh, tonight to uh, just study the Word of God together. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts, or at least in Acts for these last several weeks, as we prepare our our minds to to really begin a study in uh, the book of Ephesians here in the next few weeks. So I'll ask you to just take your Bibles and open them with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we are really talking about where, where our focus ought to be as Christians when it comes to the church, our love for the church. And we're doing that really by looking at the life of the Apostle Paul here in Acts. And we find ourselves right in the middle, really, of the Apostle Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. He has uh, been on his journey for some time, and on his way he has spent much time stopping from place to place in order that he might encourage the believers in each of the locations where he had ministry. And uh, he wants to encourage their faith, but he also wants to, to really exhort them that they might persevere in their love for the church. And one of those groups that Paul has a great desire to see, but also a great desire to exhort, are the leaders from the church in Ephesus. You remember that this church is the church where Paul had spent three years of his time on his missionary travels, Uh, establishing them as a church and then appointing leadership to oversee the believers there. And so I want to pick up tonight where where Acts 20 20 picks it up, beginning in verse 17, and really our study is focusing on the final verses from verse 17 all the way down to verse 38. Last week we we began to look at this section, we began to uncover what, what is going on with the life of Paul and drawing some, some implications for our own lives as we learn to love the church as we ought. And I had told you that I wanted to look at it from, from three different angles, uh, or three vantage points, if you will, as we look at this text. In other words, I want to I want to just break these verses down into three sections so that we can just begin to get our minds wrapped around this larger narrative section of of Acts and what God then would have us to learn from the life of the Apostle Paul as we uncovered here in this text. We broke it down this way. I don't know if you were keeping an outline last time, but I'll share it with you again. We broke it down this way. Paul's ministry testimony that he Uh, gives in verses 18 through 24, and then touches on it once again over in verses 33 to 35, and we looked at that last time. Secondly was Paul's exhortation to the elders, verses 25 to 31, and we'll begin to look at that tonight. And then thirdly, Paul's prayer, Paul's prayer in verses 36 to 38. And my hope is to just get through all of this tonight so we can move on to then the book of Ephesians here in a couple weeks. Of course, next week is prayer night as we do on our first Sundays of the month. And then the following Sunday is my hope to begin in the book of Ephesians. So we've already spent time on the first of those 
categories or those sections, verses 18 to 24, and then again, 33 to 35. And so tonight, I just want to cover these next two. Vantage point number two, we'll spend most of our time on, and that is simply this, Paul's exhortation to these elders, beginning in verse 25. Let me just read these verses for us all the way down to verse 31. Paul says, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard then for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. We can stop right there. This is really, for all intents and purposes, a singularly focused exhortation from the Apostle Paul. We could probably state it in different ways as Paul has stated it here in these verses, but when you really look at it in detail, when you look at it overall, it really just boils down to one thing. It boils down to really just one exhortation. The exhortation simply is this, keep watch over the flock within your charge. Keep watch over the people of God whom God has given you to watch. In these verses, he uses words that that drive to that reality. Words uses words like guard, guard the flock, to to the idea of some will not spare the flock. He talks about and savage wolves. He mentions all of those words drive to that idea, but essentially he is exhorting them to do one thing and to do it well. What is that? Watch over the flock. Watch over the people of God's church. We sang about it just a moment ago in that wonderful hymn that we sang, and I was struck by the words. I leaned over to my wife and I said, what a, what a phenomenal line that is, right? The church that he created. This new creation called the church wasn't there before, and now it is because God, by His gracious and merciful hand, has brought about the church which He bought with His own blood, Paul says in verse 28. And so it goes without saying, I think, tonight to reiterate that the primary task for any leader in the church, and I think we could extend it even out to spiritual leaders in any place. That'd be in the home, in the workplace, being a spiritual leader at all, in discipleship over someone else's life. I think it can be extended out to that, the exhortation to be on guard for the enemy. Watch out for the enemy. If we're going to love the church as Paul loved the church, then we ought to think about the reality of being on guard for the enemy. And yet, it seems strangely sad in our day and age that that seems to be at times when you look at the evangelical landscape of our day and age, the farthest thing from reality. Paul says in verse 26, of this text, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. That's a bold statement. You say, why could Paul make such a bold statement? Well, Paul can make the statement in verse 26 because of what he says in verse 27. 
Right? Therefore, I testify to you this day, verse 26, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, guard the flock, and the way I can tell you to do that and show you to do that and exhort you to do that is because that's exactly what I did. How did I do that? I spoke to you the whole purpose of God. What is Paul saying? Paul's just simply saying, I did what God asked me to do. I fulfilled my ministry. I fulfilled my obligation. What God had told me. And I could therefore make this statement to you men. I couldn't help but think when I was looking at this that the Apostle Paul potentially was reminded in his mind of what God had said to Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel from the Old Testament in chapter 33, verses 7 through 9. Here's what he says. Here's what God said to Ezekiel in order to have Ezekiel do what God had asked him to do. He said, now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. This is exactly, I think, what Paul was having on his mind as Paul was going through his ministry. And Paul could say to the Ephesian elders, listen, I spent this time with you, and here's what I can do. I can stand before you, and I can say, I testify to you that I'm not guilty of any man. There's no blood on my hands because I didn't warn you. No, you have been duly warned. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. You can only imagine sitting there as a leader in the church of Ephesus, how it would have been a sobering reminder to each and every one of them as to the seriousness of the responsibility to speak God's Word and only God's Word. And I think this is a a thing where we can just sit for a moment and let that reality rest upon us as Christians because each and every one of us has a responsibility when we deal with the individual, when we deal with our own lives, that we are to share the truth of God as God has given it. The implication for these men would have been the implication ought to be the same for us as we think about it, as we're here tonight, as we contemplate our love for the church. These men would have, following Paul's example, listening to the exhortation of Paul, bringing the whole gospel concerning God's redemption of man in Jesus Christ, or face condemnation upon themselves. I must tell them what God said, or God's condemnation is upon me. Certainly they are responsible for their sin, and yet I don't want to be party with their sin. A reminder to all of us that we have an accountability before God concerning those whom He has given us care over. Now how would they do this? How would these men exercise that love for the church? How would they fulfill that ministry that Paul is exhorting them about. They would do it by maintaining three priorities. Three priorities. Priority number one is this. Paul says, be on guard for yourselves. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves. Priority number one, watch out for yourself. Watch out for yourself. The first priority 
in any of us in carrying out our duty as a Christian, our love for the church, our, our, our walk in the Christian faith, particularly those who are leaders in the church, is to guard our own hearts and our own relationship with God. Be on guard for yourselves. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean... And I believe this is what Paul means, that if our relationship with God is not continually and regularly and uh, outworkingly being maintained through our own private time with God, then we will never be able to truly guard the flock. We'll never truly be able to care for others as we are called to care for others. Listen, we've had time in our Sunday morning adult Sunday school class when Russ has been taking us through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and talking about leadership and the qualifications for leaders in the church and all that God requires of a leader to be in the church. This is a necessity. If this isn't happening in the lives of the leaders that God has given to this church, then I dare say they're not leaders God has given to this church. They are simply just men who think they're leaders. Our ministry will only be effective when our relationship with the Father is right. Someone said tonight, I love a good John Owen quote. Well, here's one coming for you. John Owen said this years ago to pastors, they may fill the pews, they may fill their communion roles, and even the months or even the mouths of the public they may fill, but what the pastor is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Unquote. We could take those words and really put them in our own phraseology and say it this way, you are truly only as spiritual as you will ever be when you are by yourself with God alone. In your Christian life, you find yourself saying to yourself, I'm doing pretty well, I'm doing pretty good. And when you're around others, it seems as if you're on those spiritual highs and everything is going on. And yet when you are by yourself, when no one's watching, no one's around, your spiritual life isn't doing so well. And be rest assured at this, that's your real spiritual condition. It's not when everybody else is watching you. It's when you're alone with God. It's easy to fake. We can fake others out in our own humanity as they are watching us and see only the outward, but it's God who examines the heart. Anyone who has ever been in any kind of leadership in the church or who aspires to some kind of leadership in the church will need, must be ready to face the pressures and responsibilities. They will not be ready to handle those pressures and responsibilities if they are not first right with God above. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, who seemingly was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, who aspires, reminded him of these words, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy, take a hard look at your life. Look hard at your teaching and make sure that they both honor God and the testimony that you are proclaiming. 
when I was going through seminary as a young seminarian, we were required to read a book by the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter called The Reformed Pastor. And I want to I want to read a portion of it for us. It's, it's a little lengthy, but but I think it really applies to anyone really who claims Christ. And I'm sure that when Baxter wrote wrote it, he was he was writing it as a really a reminder to himself. It says this quote Take heed to yourselves lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others. And lest you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Will you make it your work to magnify God? And when you have done that, dishonor Him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet condemn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach the laws and willfully break them? If sin is evil then why do you live in it? If it be not evil, then why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? And if it be not, why do you tell men that it is? And he quotes from Romans 6, which says this, To whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey whether unto sin, which is unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. Unquote. You say, wow. What's his point? His point is, is that God calls for holiness, not just on the outside. God calls for holiness on the inside. Holiness that is from the heart. And so Paul says, be on guard for yourselves. You must first be right with God. That's priority number one. We're going to love the church. We're going to carry out our ministry. If we're leaders in the church, we're going to guard the flock as we are to. We need to guard ourselves. Priority number two. Paul says, watch for all the flock. Watch for all the flock. Notice what he says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Wow, pastor, you're smart. That's a great outline. That's just what the verse says. Watch out for the flock. I think Paul is just simply relating two ways in which we have to carry out the mandate. Right? The first is through doing what he has done. Right? We find that in verse 27. Don't shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. Don't hide anything. Don't say in your own heart, well, I shouldn't say this because if I say this, somebody might not like it. I got news for us. They're not going to like it. Just settle that. They're not going to like it. Why? Because they don't like God already. Tell them the truth. They need what God says. You don't want their blood on your hands. Just tell them what God said. Because in the day of repentance, when they repent, they're not going to be angry at you anymore. They're going to be thankful. So the first thing is do what Paul did. Right? That's the job. That's the task, particularly for leaders in the church as shepherds. For us who have to take care of the souls of men, we have to make sure we're right with God and then we must feed the flock over which we have been given charge. It's not difficult for us to find a metaphor in Scripture about sheep and shepherding, is it? Right? This is not a, a bizarre metaphor for us in the Scriptures. Something happened to my notes and now I'm going crazy. Really? We're going to do this? Technology. Got to love it. Right? It's not difficult for us. It, it 
is clear. We are God's sheep. God is the shepherd, right? It's through His shepherding of His sheep. We have been fit to care for others, right? We care for His flock. He's given overseers over His flock. We shepherd the flock. So we have to keep that in mind as leaders in the church. This isn't the flock of ours. They're not our sheep. They're God's sheep. And therefore, we have to shepherd them as God would have them shepherd. We aren't the owners. And our text tells us here in verse 28, this is the flock, notice, among which the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. So we didn't make that position ourselves. This is what God has done. This is a God-designed reality. And He has made us overseers to shepherd the church of God. You notice it's God's church, it's not ours, which He purchased with his own blood. You notice the prepositions, or you notice the personal pronouns there. It's God's church. It's God's people. It's God's flock. God did it to you. God made you that. It's his. He's the one ruling over this. And so shepherd here means, in an overarching sense, to care for. It's the the term in Scripture that covers all aspects of caring for something. But, but there's some specificity to it as well. It's, it's, an, it's an overarching term, shepherd, right? You, you do all the things to care for, but, but there's specificity to it by means of the task. And the task is to feed. To feed the sheep. It's the primary task of a shepherd, to feed the sheep. Because these sheep are not the shepherd's sheep who is feeding them. He, they are God's sheep whom has placed the shepherd to shepherd them. Then they must be fed what God gives. This is a big problem in evangelicalism. The sheep that are God's sheep are not being given what God has given to give them. Church today has a whole lot of shepherds doing a whole lot of things, and they lead the sheep to a whole lot of empty pastures to have nothing to nourish them. The tragic result is you have weak sheep, weak sheep, vulnerable, taken here and there by winds of doctrine that draw them away from all kinds of things. It comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in the form of radio broadcasts and podcast broadcasts and YouTube broadcasts and books that are out there at infinitum and all kinds of things that that sound good, they're close. They're drawing people in the wrong direction. They're, They're like potato chips off the shelf in the grocery store filled with a lot of air, but they have no real substance. And so Paul exhorts these leaders... And he says, no, no, you declare the whole purpose of God. Don't hold anything back from them. Don't don't truncate what I've given you. Don't, Don't stop the message. You give them what I gave you to give them. This is what they need. Often reminded of the Apostle Peter back in John chapter 21 after Jesus rose from the dead and he meets them up in Galilee. John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17. Jesus is giving them instruction. He's made breakfast for them right there on the beach. He's giving them instruction. And he tells Peter, by asking him those probing questions, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks Peter that question. And Peter tells him three times, yes, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. And three times Jesus tells Peter, take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Once he uses the word shepherd. Once he says, shepherd my sheep. Twice, two of the answers, he says, tend my flock. Tend my sheep. Once, shepherd them. Twice, he says, tend them. Remember I said shepherd is a general term. Care. 
encompasses all the things that takes place in the care of God's sheep. But tend is more specific. Tend is the task of feeding. Feeding. So Jesus is saying to Peter, listen, Peter, you care for my sheep. Specifically, Peter, you feed them. You care for them, but specifically they need to be fed. You feed my sheep. Paul is saying, what do I feed them? You feed them the whole purpose of God. You don't shrink back from declaring any of that. What else? What else does a shepherd do? Well, the second thing a shepherd does is lead them. Lead them. Right? That's the nature of a sheep to follow. They're followers by nature, and because they are followers, the shepherd comes and he sets the course. The shepherd sets the direction for them to follow. He directs them to the place they ought to go. They they cannot simply be just left alone to wander and do their own thing. Sheep that wander are sheep that are dangerous, sheep that are vulnerable to other things. They will die if they're left unattended. They have to be led. why sheep are exhorted in Scripture to follow their shepherds. Hebrews 13.17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And then the writer of Hebrews says, Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Don't be a Don't be a sheep that's always given trouble. Why? Because that would be unprofitable for you, it says. Not profitable for you. But we have to remember that God has given to His church those who are to lead and feed. And it ought to be a sobering reminder, really, to all of us, particularly those who are in leadership in the church, that one day, one day we will stand before God and give an account for how we led those committed to our charge. So why is such an urgent exhortation necessary from Paul? Why is Paul doing this? Verse 29, he says, I know, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The urgent request in all of this is you need to watch out for the flock. You do that by watching out for yourself. You do that by by caring for the flock, and you care for the flock by giving them what I have given you to give them. It's my sheep, God says, not yours. Why is that urgent? Because there is danger around every corner. I know that after my departure, after I'm off the stage, after my shepherding responsibility is gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Danger is lurking, Paul says. That's why. Paul had no doubt that after he was gone, false teachers were going to flood in the doors. And they were going to threaten the spiritual lives of the sheep just as they did everywhere he went. You say, why is that so? Because every time the truth is proclaimed, every time the the truth is is held with high esteem, every time the truth is, is upheld as it is the truth of God, every time the sheep are fed the truth, the evil one wants to come along and infiltrate with lies and false doctrine confusing things, things that will not help at all. Paul calls these people, notice, savage wolves. Savage wolves. Have you ever known a nice wolf? I I don't know a nice wolf. And yet Paul says they're savage wolves. That, That almost puts even greater emphasis on the reality of who these are. They're savage wolves. Jude, 
uses even stronger language in describing these kinds of false teachers in Jude verses 10 through 13. He says, these men revile the things which they do not understand and things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. He said, woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain and pay and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Remember Balaam from the Old Testament. Cain killed his own brother. Balaam was wanting a curse to be done for money. And they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah was the one who stood against things and took things, hit them in his, his own house. And when they were found out, he and his family and everybody who knew was swallowed up by the earth. He says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. I've, I've done plenty of boating when I lived in Florida, and you don't want to come upon a hidden reef. It's not a good thing. It will destroy your boat. These are hidden reefs. They'll destroy you. They're in there without fear. They care for themselves. They're not caring for the flock. They're clouds without water who are carried along by wind. They're autumn leaves without fruit. They're doubly dead. They're uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. They're wandering stars. That's a pretty severe language. Peter uses similar language, 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter calls them stains and blemishes having eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin, hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children, springs without water, and mists driven by a storm. You say, man, that's strong words. Paul's using strong words, savage wolves. Jude uses strong words in, that, in, in speaking of false teachers. Second, Peter uses strong words in thinking of them. And if that's not strong enough, he says this, here's what Peter says, he ends this way, they are born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. That sounds pretty serious. If that wasn't neat enough for protection through leading and feeding, because of those from the outside, Paul says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. You don't want a savage wolf in among you. Because they don't spare the flock. But what's even worse than that, Paul says, is the defection of some that are already inside. Verse 30, And from among your own selves men will arise. It's bad enough that savage wolves are going to come in, clouds without water, creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. That's bad enough that the outsides are going to try to draw you away and so you have to be on guard for the flock. That's bad enough that you have dangers from the outside. But what's even worse than that is the fact that you need to realize they're already inside. Within the flock. It's not hard enough to already have to guard what might come in from the outside. The worst thing is that they're already inside. Notice Paul says it comes from those who will arise speaking perverse things. Perverse things. The word perverse is diastrepho in the original language. It, it, it means to twist. To twist. They're word spinners. They they take those things and spin them. The English word perverse is used 16 times in the New American Standard Bible. <clears throat> and four of those times it's used in the New Testament. You know what it means every time? Every time it's used, particularly in the New Testament, it means twisted, distorted, crooked. Something that's not straight, something's not useful, something that's not helpful. In other words, Paul's saying this is their modus operandi. This is what false teachers do. They speak perverse things. They twist the truth of God for their own perverted ends. And that perverted end has a goal. What is the goal, verse 30? To draw away disciples after them. No wonder Paul would use the term savage wolves. That sounds like a savage wolf. Just come in, drag the prey away, and drag it off for his own good. That's their goal, to draw away, draw away disciples, draw away the weak, to drag them off like a wolf's dragging away his prey to eat it. 
That's the goal of false teaching. It isn't to bring clarity to an issue. They're not coming to you and saying, hey, listen, I just want to help you understand this, you know, because you really got it wrong here. No, that's not their point. They don't want to bring clarity. They might use those words to entice you, but you have to be careful. It isn't to bring true light to bear to an issue. That's not what they're doing. Its goal is to be a personal goal. The goal is a deadly goal. The goal is to have you as a sheep after them, following them. remember years ago talking to a dear brother in Christ from here who kind of saw this firsthand. I remember talking to him. I said, how did it go after we had talked about how to deal with the issue that they were dealing with? I said, how did it go? This were his words. I saw the wolf's teeth. I saw the wolf's teeth. That's what happens. That's what happens. I'm reminded once again of the words of Charles Jefferson, who wrote a book called The Minister as a Shepherd. He says it this way, quote, Many a minister fails as a pastor because he is not vigilant. He allows his church to be torn to pieces because he, has half, he is half asleep. He took it for granted that there were no wolves, no birds of prey, no robbers, and while he was drowsing, the enemy arrived. False ideas, destructive interpretations, demoralizing teachings came into his group, and he never knew it. He was interested, perhaps, in literary research. He was absorbed in the discussion contained in the last theological quarterly. He did not know what his young people were reading or what strange ideas had been lodged in the heads of a group of his leading members. There are Errors which are as fierce as wolves and pitless as hyenas. They tear faith and hope and love to peace uh, and love to pieces and lead churches one prosperous, mangled, half dead place. Pretty graphic. I think it's good to hear the words of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, once again, in his message to the shepherds of Israel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. God said, my flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, isn't that interesting? God says, as I live. In other words, as long as I'm around, this is God saying that. How long is that going to be? That's a frightening statement. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd, and my shepherds do not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds feed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I shall demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I shall deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be food for them. Unquote. Hallelujah that we have a God that will rescue us like that. A faithful shepherd must guard the flock. So Paul says in verse 31, Therefore, be on the alert. 
Remember that night and day for a period of three years I didn't cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul simply says, listen, just follow my example. I I, I was unresting night and day. I, I tried to lead and feed you with all my being. Now you do the same. You do the same. And so we have Paul's personal testimony as he goes on from verse 17. And then we have this practical exhortation. Paul ends this section. We've already covered verses 32 to 35. Paul ends this section with a prayer. Notice his prayer. This is the third part of Paul's farewell to these men. It's not a lot of words, at least not many that have been recorded here for us by Luke. But I think if we go back up to verse 32, we get a glimpse into what might be on the heart of Paul and what he might have been saying. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver, no gold, no clothes. You yourselves know these hands minister to my own need and to the men who are with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he said these things, verse 36, and he knelt down and prayed with them all. I commend you, he says, to God and to the word of his grace. Two things that these men would need if they were going to be faithful in carrying out what God had called them to do would be willing submission to God and to his word. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. You need to be submissive to those two things. You need to be in constant communion with God, in prayer yourself, as well as in study of the Word of God that you might feed and lead the sheep. You find it interesting that way back in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, that is exactly what the apostles said when the problem arose in the church and they began to bring about other men to help in the in the handling of the details of the ministry. We call them deacons now. Diakonos, servants. They said at that time, it's not good for us to do that. We need to spend our time in prayer and the study of the Word. Preaching of the Word. There's no substitute for those two things. There's no substitute for prayer. Why? Because prayer, by its very nature, assumes what? that we are dependent upon God. We speak to God because we know God's the only one who can give us what we truly need. So it places us in line with His goals, His desires. Without prayer, we can't feed and we can't lead. It's worthless. No matter how good the church may look, no matter how many programs it may have, no matter how many things are going on and it appears as if all the things are running and all the wheels are going, no matter how many great ideas are born out of all of those things, without prayer. Without prayer, it never lasts. And the Word is the source for all spiritual growth. That's why Paul says, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. Since it is the word of his grace, the study of it is the foundation. The study of it is the foundation for any ministry. And we all are in the ministry, folks. We all are in the ministry. Every one of us as a Christian. Why is the word the foundation? Because, verse 32, it's able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. That's what it does. When 
Others are weak when they're struggling believers that we're involved with. What do they need? They need to be strengthened by the Word. They need to be given the Word. We need to take them to the Word. Why? So that they're built up. So that they understand the inheritance that they have in Christ. That their hearts are growing in the Lord. So they grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3. That's what we want. We want you to just understand all that you have in Christ. That's our, that's our discipleship relationship with one another. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's how we love the church. That's how the leaders show their love for the church. Prayer and ministry of the Word. So what happened? They just began to weep. Embrace Paul. They repeatedly kissed Paul. Why? Because of Paul, what Paul had done for them, what Paul had given them. They were sad, obviously, because they weren't going to see his face again. They knew what was coming. But they were equipped. They were ready. They'd been given the tools. And so they accompanied Paul to the ship. And they went back to the ministry just as Paul had done. Beloved, if we go on ignoring these kinds of things, then all of us suffer. All of us suffer. That's how we love the church. Love the church like Paul loved the church. Ephesians is all about love for the church, isn't it? It's all about the church. Being together as a church learning what we have in Christ, and then living that out. So this is just the launch point. Launch point. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the ministry of our brother Paul. Thank you that while we have never seen him, we know him. We know him. Not because of some mystical thing, but because you have given us a testimony to his life and his love for his Savior, Jesus Christ. That example to us is an example that we can follow. Not to praise Paul, not to bring glory to Paul. He wouldn't want it. We don't want him to have it. Simply to bring glory to you, to honor you, and to have our lives reflect you and us. We thank you for this exhortation tonight, Lord. May it it cause us to think, cause us to be mindful of what implications that has for each, each and every one of us in our lives as we interact with each other, that we might show our love for the church as we show our love to one another in these things so that you receive all the glory. Lord, it is in your name we pray. Amen.